Well, my sermon text this morning comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 53. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 53. And this is a text that I uh, haven't been able to shake. Uh, It's one that uh, I've taken to heart myself and always keep coming back to. We sometimes... um, preachers find that they preach sermons best, the ones they most need to hear themselves. So with that introduction, let's uh, hear God's word from Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 53. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when he saw them walking on the sea, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. That's the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, friends, as we uh, begin thinking about this great passage in God's word, let me say that this is a great text for those who are struggling. Now, I have heard a little bit about uh, what's going on in your congregation in the pastoral prayer, but I don't know the particular struggles that each of you is experiencing or has experienced in this year, and yet I can say a few things about suffering that we all experience sooner or later in this sin-scarred world. Each of us is going to struggle in some way, shape, or form. We live in a world where thorns infest the ground, where sickness intrudes upon even the healthiest people, where death comes unexpectedly, where our own sin causes us misery day after day after day. How do you deal with struggles? How do you deal with struggles? How do you account for them as individuals, as a church? None of us likes to struggle. We wish things were calm, cool, under control at all times, peaceful. Yet this morning, I want to invite you to be what the Reformers called theologians of the cross. Theologians of the cross. A theologian of the cross knows that, yes, suffering can be God's punishment on evil. But if you belong to Christ, you know that your suffering is not a sign of God's wrath. A theologian of the cross refuses to see suffering as a sign that God has forsaken them. And not only that, I want, as we go through this text, I want you to ask yourself, is it possible that God actually wants me to struggle for a time? Is it possible God wants me to struggle for a little while? We often have a very simplistic view 
of sin and suffering. We have that view of the disciples in John chapter 9. If you remember that passage where the disciples see a man born blind and they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And you remember Jesus' answer. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, friends, your suffering is a theater in which God's glory can be displayed. Your suffering is a theater in which God's glory can be displayed. And this morning, this is what we're going to see in this text. God ordains the suffering of his servants so that Jesus' identity, glory, and power might be further revealed. Suffering and struggling... These are part of sin's toxic byproducts. They're a result of the fall. And yet even these, God has turned for the good of his people and for his glory. One of my favorite hymns is Be Still My Soul. It says, Be still my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he lived below. Be still my soul when dearest friends depart and all is darkened in the veil of tears. Then you will better know his love, his heart who comes to soothe your sorrows and your fears. Be still, my soul, your Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. This morning, we're going to see these things as we go through this text in three points. The first one is, Jesus knows what you need. Jesus knows what you need. Secondly, Jesus knows you need him. And then finally, Jesus is God with us. Now, as this text begins, we're reminded that sometimes our greatest struggles come in the context of our greatest triumphs. Uh, And that seems to be the case here in Mark chapter 6, because our scene opens after a high point, uh, after the feeding of 5,000. And remember, Jesus is feeding 5,000 men in this last section before this happened. That doesn't count all of the women and children who were countless uh, and were with the men. And so these thousands not only ate, but they were satisfied. And think about this. 5,000 men, that's enough to be an army. And we know from the other Gospels that people wanted to make Jesus their king. They wanted him to fight with the Romans, to overthrow their Roman overlords. And truly, Jesus is a powerful king. And yet, he had a better mission in mind. And so here... Instead of taking on the Romans and becoming a general for the crowds, he commands his disciples to get on a boat and go cross the Sea of Galilee. He is indeed a general, and here he orders the the disciples away. He orders the crowds away, and then he goes up to a mountain to pray. And the text doesn't tell us why did Jesus do this. Why go up to a mountain? And yet, this is often something that Jesus did in those moments after triumph, after euphoria, it seems to me that as the God-man, in his humanity, he's, he's tempted to that kingship without a cross. The same thing that the devil tempted Jesus with earlier in the gospel accounts. Remember, Jesus, Hebrews 4.15 says, was tempted in every way we are and yet without sin. In other words, this very well could have been one of those Garden of Gethsemane moments where Jesus uh, knows how great the suffering a bearing our sin would be. And he's praying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So he goes up to the mountain to pray. And Jesus knew 
what sinful human beings like me and like you needed. It wasn't just to be a military general, but a suffering servant who would bear the curse of our sin, to bear God's wrath in our place, to rise from the dead and to defeat those things. And that leads into this first point. Jesus knows what you need. Verse 47 moves this brief story along quickly. It tells us that as night came, Jesus was alone on the land. The disciples are out on the sea in the boat, and it wasn't going well for them. Look at verse 48 for a second. He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Just imagine the disciples. They're struggling here. It, It really doesn't take all that long to get across the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida, but the wind was not cooperating. They're so blown off course uh, that at the end of the story, they land at Gennesaret, not Bethsaida. That's why I included verse 53 in the scripture reading. So you could see this wind blew them far off course. Now, I'm not much of a sailor, uh, but I do like to kayak. And perhaps you've had that same kind of experience in a boat where you're trying to move forward. You're trying to paddle forward, but the wind is such that the, the water keeps pushing you back and you don't make any progress. It's one of those Ecclesiastes vanity of vanities moments where you're trying so hard and it doesn't seem to come to anything. You feel like Sisyphus pushing up a boulder over a hill. Just zoom in on these disciples for a second. Imagine them in that boat, frustrated. I can imagine that if I were one of these disciples in this incident, I would be blaming Jesus. Hours ago, they'd been at the top of the world. Jesus was this miracle worker. He had a glamorous following. These disciples, they were his lieutenants, his right-hand men. The world had been their oyster. Why did Jesus have to ruin everything? Why did he have to send us away on the boat? Now look what's happened. We're stuck. We're struggling. We're tired. They had obeyed Jesus, and yet their obedience led them to suffering. They had obeyed Jesus, and yet their obedience led them to suffering. So much for the prosperity gospel of health and wealth. Now that phrase, they were making headway painfully in in our translation. It it softens up the Greek a little bit. My reading uh, is, is a little bit harsher here. He saw that they were tormented in rowing. Sometimes our struggles, they feel like torments, don't they? And the disciples are at this for some time. It doesn't take 10 hours to make this journey, and yet they're stuck. And Mark shows us just how painful this whole struggle is. Because when did Jesus come to them? It wasn't until the fourth watch of the night. That's between 3 and 6 in the morning. I don't know about you, but I don't get my best work between those hours of the night. And the disciples are tired, they're confused, it's 3 a.m., and they're struggling. They're being tormented in rowing. And before we hear about their rescue, I want you to consider with me for a second why Jesus ordained this struggle for them. Now, Mark doesn't tell us explicitly why, but... We know later in Mark's gospel that the disciples are tempted to pride. Who will be first? Who's going to sit at your right hand, Jesus? We know they struggled to embrace the idea of Jesus suffering and going to the cross. When Jesus hinted to his disciples of his upcoming suffering, 
Remember what Peter said. He said, no, Jesus, that's not going to happen. And Jesus said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The disciples easily bought into that prosperity way of thinking, that potential of earthly glory. They were resistant to suffering, resistant to the true plan that God had in mind for Jesus to be the suffering servant who would die for our sins and be raised for our justification. It seems to me that Jesus intended his disciples to suffer here, to humble them after that euphoria of feeding the thousands. And he wanted them to embrace this theology of the cross that I spoke about. And this is certainly a truth for all of us as well. Jesus knows what you need, sometimes even suffering. Think for a moment about 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, it tells us about Paul dealing with this thorn in his flesh. He has some problem. We're not sure what it is. He doesn't explicitly tell us what it is. But he says, this is like a thorn in my flesh. If you get a thorn or a splinter in your skin, it's not usually an overpowering pain. And yet it's there in the background continually until you can be free of it. And Paul is dealing with this. He's saying, I'm pleading with the Lord to remove this and take away this thorn in the flesh. But then he says, God revealed he had a good purpose. He knows what I need. This is to keep me from being conceited. In other words, it was better for Paul to suffer than it was for him to sin. And God pledged my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Friends, God knows what his disciples needed. It was to suffer in that moment. God knew what the Apostle Paul needed. It was to suffer that thorn in his flesh so that he would be humble and not conceited and proud. God knows what you need most. And yes, sometimes that even means suffering for a little while. The reality is, as the Puritans said, we are far more troubled by our circumstances than we are by our sins. And yet God reveals again and again that it's better for us to suffer for a little while than it is for us to sin. And so in your suffering, in your struggles as a husband, as a, as a wife, your struggles against sin, or as a child, or financially, or physically, or spiritually, or as a church, rest on Christ who knows what you need most. Believe that his grace is sufficient for you to get you through whatever this struggle is and trust that he has a good purpose for it. I know you've been hearing from Romans 8 that great promise that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ. Know that this too will pass. 1 Peter 5 says, After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So in your suffering and your struggling, no, you're not alone. Jesus sees it. He knows it. And he's with you. And that leads right into our second point here. Jesus knows that you need him. And I don't know how uh, Jesus could physically see the disciples under these circumstances and conditions, but Mark tells us he saw them struggling. It reminds me of Exodus 2 where uh, it's describing the slavery of God's people in Egypt and it, they're groaning, they're crying out for help and just the way the text describes God hearing it shows his compassion. Exodus 2 says, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel 
and God knew. God sees Rachel's tears. Jesus sees the disciples struggling, and he comes to them, and the text says he came to them walking on the sea. And then it adds, he meant to pass by them. But clearly, it's not just that Jesus has decided across the sea on foot, hoping to avoid them, and then, oh, there he is. I think the phrasing here isn't something for us to be embarrassed by, but Mark is being very intentional here. You know, Mark's gospel is full of Old Testament quotations and allusions showing us that Jesus is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. Mark shows us, for example, that Jesus is greater than Moses, that he's the leader of a new exodus uh, and a new Israel into the promised land of heaven. And you see what, what's happening here in Mark's usage of he meant to pass by them is that Jesus is revealing his divine identity to the disciples. The very fact he's walking on the water should suggest this. Who can do this but God himself? Job says, God does this. God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. But furthermore, think about that language that Mark's using of passing by. The same language is used of Moses when God passed by Moses, hidden in the cleft in the rock in Exodus chapter 33. Moses, you remember there, needed reassurance that God would be with him, that God would be with Israel on their exodus. He's crying out to God, please show me your glory. And God's response was, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. This, friends, is what Jesus is reenacting here, except it's not Moses, but it's his struggling disciples that he passes by. And Mark undoubtedly wants us to see these connections and these Old Testament links because they keep on coming. We hear that the disciples, when they see Jesus, they think he's a ghost. They're terrified, but what does Jesus say in response? He says, take heart, it is I. Now, you can probably guess what those words are in Greek. They're ego eimi, I am. The same identification that the Lord uses to speak to Moses in Exodus 3 from the burning bush. The same identification that God uses in Isaiah 43. Jesus is revealing to them that he is the Lord, that he is divine, which is undoubtedly what verse 52 is referring to when it says that disciples did not understand. He sees that they need him, and he comes to them. He comes, he gets in the boat, and he calms the storm. Here's a very practical point for us. When you're struggling... When you're suffering, God sees it. He knows it, and he will come and help you and change things at just the right time. As Jesus showed Lazarus' sisters, he's never late. Would it change your response to trials to know these things? You know, what do we tend to do when we struggle, when we suffer? We tend to hold pity parties for ourselves. Uh, Just one Sunday... uh, when I was serving at Bethel, I, I shared the story from 2 Kings 5 about the little Israelite girl who was captured by the Syrians. She was made their slave, uh, and she didn't self-pity. 
She didn't complain, but she loved her enemy, and she pointed the general there who was sick with leprosy to where he could find healing in the God of Israel. She pointed him to grace and salvation. She didn't pity parting. And yet, just after mentioning that very passage to my congregation, what did I do when I went home? I wallowed in self-pity. Isn't that one of the great temptations during trials? Isn't it, friends, to say, woe is me. And yet God tells us to rejoice when we face various trials because God has good purposes for them. For example, 1 Peter chapter 1 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. God has good purposes, and he comes at just the right time. Now, it says Jesus intended to pass by them. He knew that they were like Moses. They needed a glimpse of his glory. Now, there are various scholarly explanations for the idea that that maybe Jesus here is intending to do one thing, but then he ends up doing another. And so we're asking this question of this text, did he intend to do one thing and then he needed to do something else? Did it only appear to the disciples as if he was going to pass by them? I think the answer is that Jesus did as he intended. And the but that begins verse 49 is not a description of Jesus changing plans, but of the disciples falsely identifying him. He passes by them just as God passed by Moses in the rock, but they don't have eyes to see his glory. Friends, when you're struggling, when you're making painful headway, make that cry of Moses your cry. Lord, show me your glory. Give me a glimpse of your glory and your purposes in this. What a difference that would make in your response to, strugg- to struggles. Think about that prayer for a second. Isn't that a prayer that God delights to answer? He tells us to pray, hallowed be thy name. When you're struggling, pray that God's glory would be on brilliant display, not only to you, but to others around you. Now, this chapter has a sacramental character uh, to me as I read it, and that brings me to that last point. Jesus is God with us. Jesus was not only revealing to his disciples his identity as Emmanuel, God with us, but he's physically with them. He's physically with them to assure them, to keep them from fear. It should have been enough for the disciples just to see Jesus pass by them, walking on water as the God who controls all things. And yet, what did Jesus do? He condescended to their weakness. He got in the boat And he stilled the storm. And I can't help but think that the disciples later thought of this as a fulfillment of Isaiah 43. Where God says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You're mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, 
because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. I, I am the Lord. Besides me, there is no Savior. Disciples have just been in the presence of Jesus. He fed an army of people miraculously. And now, where are they? They're terrified as Jesus is walking on the water and they think that he's a ghost. If they only grasp who Jesus was, the creator who controls all things, they should have seen that Jesus has just reenacted the Exodus event of providing manna from heaven, bread from heaven. And now he's recreating and reenacting the crossing of the sea. But Mark tells us that after Jesus quieted the sea, they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Who is this man? Who is it who walks on water, who stills storms? Mark's gospel continually prompts readers to ask these questions. Who is Jesus and will I be his disciple? To put the two questions together, who is Jesus to you? Today, let me ask you, are you a disciple of this man, Jesus Christ? Will you be his disciple if you're not? He doesn't call those who have everything together. He doesn't call the perfect The disciples certainly don't have everything together here, and yet they're his disciples. They're slow to believe, even as they had that privilege of being with Jesus physically. He doesn't require that you have the ability to walk on water. That first and decisive step is believing on him, is resting in him for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, knowing that he reveals his identity, his glory, more and more to his followers. And so whether or not you're a Christian this morning, ask yourself as you think of this text, is my heart hardened in the same way that disciples had hardened hearts that prevented them from understanding what was going on? You know, there are a variety of reasons why people's hearts get hardened in life. Perhaps it's because you think you need all your intellectual arguments answered about God. Perhaps It's because of the suffering you've endured that has made you hardened. Perhaps it's because you insist on only believing what you can see, even though you believe in the wind around you. Perhaps your heart is hardened because you have idols that God is not allowing you to have. You've placed something above God, and inwardly you're singing to that thing, how great thou art. You're singing that to an ambition or to a a person or a relationship or an achievement. Whatever the reason, may your heart be softened by the compassion that Christ displays here. He knows what you need most. You need Him. He sees your struggles and He promises to be with you and to give you grace that's sufficient. That gives you courage. In fact, until you know that Jesus is God, until you have a glimpse, an inkling of His identity, your struggles are going to have little meaning. And little purpose. You know, you can say there's always a silver lining, but we all know that sometimes those things that don't kill us really don't make us stronger. Being a Christian doesn't mean that you're always going to understand why you suffer, but it means that you know that Jesus hears your cries when you do suffer. He sees your pain. He provides a grace that is all sufficient. And he uses that suffering as a tool 
to refine you and make you more like himself. Your suffering is the domain of God's glory being revealed. And so you plead, yes, may this cup pass from me. But you're also enabled by the Holy Spirit to say, not my will, but your will be done. You know, the disciples are tormented by the winds and the waves and the seas until Jesus calms them. The good news is that if you belong to Jesus by faith, you know that the torments of this present world, whatever they are, are limited and one day will come to an end. One day Christ will return and make all things new. One day he'll come and wipe away all the tears from your eyes. It'll be a day when striving cease. But the bad news is that for those who reject Christ, that torments, the torments of this present world, are only the beginning. And that is truly a a prospect that should terrify more than seeing any ghost. And so as we wait for that day when striving cease, we rejoice that God gives us glimpses of his glory, glimpses of his identity and his power. That's what we're doing right here. In worship, God is showing you his glory. Think about the, the progression in redemptive history that you see in this chapter. God revealed himself to Moses in a limited way. You can only see the back part. And yet here, Jesus, in Jesus, God is revealing himself more fully to his disciples in the face of Jesus. They don't just see God's back. They behold the triune God through the face of Jesus. Now we have God revealed to us in the preaching of God's word, in sacraments like baptism and the Lord's Supper. These new covenant ordinances may be less glamorous than those older ways of God showing his glory and promises, but we believe the scriptures that they have greater spiritual efficacy. Remember what Peter writes in 2 Peter 1 about seeing even the glory of the transfiguration. And then he says, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He says what we have in the word is more sure. As you hear God's word, you too should be utterly astounded at the person of Christ and at God's love for you despite your sin as you worship. God passes by and he shows you his glory. And we can behold that glory and not die because we found safety in Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation. It's because Jesus insisted on even suffering for us that we can glimpse his glory as redeemed sinners and not be utterly destroyed. One day we'll see the greater fullness of God's glory in the face of Jesus, face to face in heaven. His resurrection means that in our struggles, we're not terrified of death. We're not terrified of ghosts. His ascension means he's watching over us as a sympathetic great high priest preparing a place of rest for us. He gives you his spirit to assure us of his love and to enable us to respond to suffering in a godly way. To soften our hearts as only he can do. To go back to the question that I opened with, is it possible that God has actually ordained for you to suffer for a little while? Not because he doesn't care, but because without that struggle, 
you would have less of an idea of who Jesus is. Ask yourselves, why did this story happen the way it did? Why didn't Jesus just use the same power over the seas to calm them from afar? He could have just said the word and calmed the seas from the mountain. It's a bit like the creation narrative in, of the woman in Genesis chapter 2. Why did God do it the way he did where he created woman? God always intended to create a woman, but Adam had to experience that need first, that not goodness that made him cry when woman was created. At last. At last. The disciples' struggle provided a context of drama in which Jesus' identity and power could be revealed in a deep and profound way. And the same is true for us in a variety of ways. God could instantly have just made you perfect in holiness when you became a Christian. He could just eliminate all of our struggles so that our life is just carefree. But he doesn't do that, and he has a good reason for it. Rest assured that the struggles that you experience, they're not pointless, but they invite you to know Christ better and deeper. You share not only in his resurrection power, but also even in his sufferings. Paul says in Philippians 3, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we know Christ, that you invite us to know him, and that, Lord, even our sufferings in this sin-scarred world are being turned by you for our good, for your glory. Lord, uh, we confess that we so often lament all of our struggles, that we self-pity, that we complain and say, woe is me. And yet you teach us, Lord, that it's better for us not to sin than it is for us not to endure suffering. Lord, we pray that you would shape us and mold us so that we can cry when we suffer, not my will, but thy will be done. Lord, we do pray that you would give relief to those who are suffering. But Lord, we pray that you would also provide grace that is sufficient. And that, Lord, you would show us your glory. Just as Moses cried out, Lord, show me your glory. Lord, help us to cry out, Lord, show me your glory today and in every day of our lives. And we thank you that in Christ you show us your glory, that we might marvel at it, that we might serve you looking, seeking, and finding the splendor of your holiness and your goodness. Thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.